Good morning, everybody. This morning, uh, by God's grace, we will be concluding our series through the book of Philippians. We've made it all the way through over the past couple of months, and we will look at the final portion of Paul's letter to the Philippians this morning. So I'd invite you uh, to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 10. We're going to read from there to the end of the book. Um, Before we do that, while you're flipping there, um, I wanted to show you something that hopefully brings a smile to your face. Um, Stephanie is not in the office while I'm recording this and she's been in and out of the office over the past week or so Um, and she knew that I would be recording these probably by myself and she also knows how much uh, that I don't really like this kind of interaction between me and you. I'd much prefer to see your faces and see uh, your reactions to uh, the Word of God and and to interact in that way and so she decided to do something that would hopefully help me Um, be able to feel like there was a congregation in front of me. And so she put something in my office actually last week, and I had it last for last week's message, but I didn't show it to you because there was enough announcements. But I thought this week you should see how Stephanie likes to represent you. Um, This is creepy. It's almost horrifying. I'm not sure if she actually gave names to all of them. Actually, I think this one's Nancy um, because she's got glasses. I don't know. I don't know who these are, but this is um, this is how Stephanie sees all of you as creepy dolls that stare into people's souls. Um, that is not how I view you, but hopefully by now you found the book of Philippians and chapter four, and there's absolutely no segue between the creepy doll puzzle box and the book of Philippians, but I needed something uh, to give you time to find Philippians chapter four. So now that you've found it, Philippians chapter four, verse 10, We will read all the way to the end of verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me more you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied, now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Paul has 
concluded his letter now to the Philippians, a letter of friendship, a letter of trust, a letter of exhortation, a letter of thanks. It's a, a letter written in the midst of persecution and suffering and trials, a letter written from Paul who's in prison to the Philippians who are experiencing, as he says, much of the very same thing that he's experienced. Trials, persecutions, sufferings. He writes to them because he loves them. He writes to them because he wants them to stand strong in the faith. He writes to them because the gospel is the most important thing that binds them together in their friendship. And as we mentioned earlier, certainly in past weeks, but as we read this this passage, Paul is now giving thanks for a specific thing, a specific gift that they gave to him, financial support. And Paul and the Philippians, both experiencing all kinds of suffering, have much that they needed. Paul needed things while he was in prison. The Philippians needed things. And Paul gives some final words of exhortation in the form of thanksgiving in the midst of suffering. And he wants to thank them for what they've done. It may seem odd, it may seem weird that he actually waited to the end of his letter to say thanks, but he didn't actually wait to the end. He gave thanks to God in verse 3 of chapter 1 for the relationship that he had with them. That's what he was most thankful for, not the specific gift. But now he gets to this part of the letter where he gives thanks for the things, the ways that the Philippians have cared for him while he was in prison. Far away from them, absent from them in body, but they were still very much with him in spirit. And Paul wants to give thanks to them for what they've done. And so what I've done is I've broken down our our passage just into two sections plus a conclusion. The first section is in verse 10 through 13. Verses 10 through 13. And what we see in verses 10 through 13, in Paul's thanks... What we really see is Paul's contentment was not dependent on their gifts. Paul's contentment was not dependent on gifts. Paul talks about learning the secret of contentment. And in the, mix, in the, in the midst of thanking them, he, he almost stumbles over different ways of saying, but not really. Or that's what it looks like from the outside. He says, thanks, but I didn't need this. Or I didn't really, I didn't really desire this. It's okay. I wasn't, I wasn't really searching for this may seem like an odd way to give thanks, but let's, let's start looking through how Paul thanks them. In verse 10, Paul expresses his gratitude for their concern more than their specific gift. I greatly rejoiced in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. He's more thankful that they actually had concern rather than writing a check. We can write checks without actually being concerned. They wrote the check and Paul is sure that they actually had concern for him. They actually loved him and cared for him. And he is more thankful for that concern rather than the expression of the concern itself. He rejoices that their concern, which has always been there. Indeed, you were concerned. You've always been concerned. And there's a good indication that they've always been concerned from the very moment that Paul brought them the gospel, from the very moment that they heard the gospel and received it, they started to care about Paul. Paul says, I'm thankful for the concern that you've always had. And I'm thankful now that it's been renewed. Indeed, you were always concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. You've renewed your concern for me. There was, there was just a lack of opportunity, not a lack of care and concern. The term renewed is actually um, a botanical term. It's talking about when you move from winter, we've got snow and ice outside. And when you move from winter into springtime, there's a renewal of the greenery, a renewal of the flowers. They're still there. Life is there but there's a renewal of actually visibly seeing it. That's what Paul's saying. 
you've always been concerned for me. It's always been there. But now you actually have the opportunity to show it. And Paul is more thankful, more so for their concern than the actual gift. And their concern for him was proven true. This is why Paul knows that their concern is real, that they actually care for him, that they actually love him. Because the moment an opportunity presented itself to care for Paul, they leapt at it. They went right for it. We're not sure why they had no opportunity before this. We're not, we're not told exactly why they, they couldn't um, show and express their concern and love for Paul previously. Maybe they didn't know where he was. Maybe they didn't know exactly how to get to him or how to communicate with him. But what we do know is that when they found out that Paul was in need, they sent Epaphroditus with a gift to care for Paul just as an expression of how much they loved him and cared for him and were partners with him in gospel ministry. Their concern for him was proven true because they, they went right after the opportunity to care for Paul. And then Paul says in verse 11 that, yes, the concern is the biggest point. The concern is what he's most thankful for. He's actually thankful for the gift as well. He's thankful for the gift that they gave him, but he's not dependent on them. This is where it kind of seems to be like he's not really thanking them. Paul's indeed grateful for their gifts, but he's not dependent on those gifts themselves. Verse 11 says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. He's thanking them for the support that he received from them, but he says, I'm, I didn't need them. I wasn't looking for them. I wasn't anticipating them. Very thankful, but not dependent on them. Paul emphasizes his contentment not to downplay the impact of the gift because Paul was really in need. Being in prison, Paul needs food. Being in prison, Paul needs clothes. Being in prison, Paul needs somebody to care for him. He can't come and go as he pleases. He needs others to care for him. But there's a difference between depending on others and depending on God. And Paul has said that even though he is depending on other people, in a sense, it's really God who he's depending on. And he's learned that whether these people show up, whether he has lots of food or little food, he has learned to be content. He wants to show them that his friendship with them is real. It's not based on how much he could get from them. He doesn't just write them this letter to thank them for the support that they gave him, and that's it. That's what we do sometimes. And those are, those are good and right things to do when we receive something. This is what we've done over Christmas time. When our girls get gifts from their aunts and uncles and from grandma and grandpa, we tell them to say thank you. You say thank you for the gift. And that's right. But Paul says his thankfulness for them is not dependent on what he can get from them. I didn't need it. I didn't desire it from you. I desired a friendship with you. That's what he wanted most. That's what he had. It's not based on what he can get from them. It's not a utility kind of relationship. That would be a, a sad kind of relationship in any relationship. It would be sad if my relationship with my wife was dependent on what I got from her. That my rejoicing in the relationship I had with her, my thankfulness towards her solely rested in what she gave me, in how she cleaned up after me or provided for me or, or whatever it was rather than for the relationship itself. And this is true with Paul and the Philippians. He wanted to show them, yes, I am grateful for the gift, but our friendship is not based on gifts. It's based on the gospel. It's based on our common bond in Jesus Christ.
And Paul emphasizes that he had learned contentment in whatever circumstance. And the only way he learned contentment was through experience, was through actually going through those things where he would have to display contentment. Learning can be a hard experience. Falling off the bike and learning to get back up and learning to get back on the bike and learning to ride, that is a hard experience. But it takes the experience to actually learn. And Paul learned what it meant to be content through the experience of having both want and plenty. He's not pretending that these circumstances don't exist. That's not what contentment is. Contentment is not pretending that everything that's going on around you doesn't really exist. Contentment is not looking at our current situation and saying the pandemic is not a real thing, that businesses have not closed down, that people are not hungry, that people are not depressed. Contentment is not ignoring circumstances. Contentment is being in the midst of circumstances and not letting your attitude be driven by them. Paul has said this over and over again in a number of different ways. Your attitude, your approach, your mindset, your relationship with God is not driven by external circumstances, but by internal realities. The fact that we are saved by grace through faith and we stand on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Paul's contentment stems from that, not his external circumstances. He has risen above the place of prison, the external circumstance of prison. He, his mind has risen above that and he has learned to be content. Paul's experience has given him knowledge. It's given him insight. It's given him the right attitude in both poverty and riches. Look in verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. It's interesting that Paul says he's learned to be content in both plenty and in need. We usually talk about contentment when it, when it comes to just being in need. We need to be content with the little that we have. And yet it's a problem even amongst those who are rich. Those who are rich still have to battle and understand what it means to be content. Because those that are rich also have the tendency to want more. To want more than what they have. To want more than what God has graciously given and provided for them rich or poor, it doesn't matter. Contentment, the right attitude, regardless of external circumstances, is something that both rich and poor need to come to terms with. And that can only be done in the gospel. Paul has learned the secret of being content. The secret. That that phrase is a a unique word choice, a unique phrase that Paul uses that um, most scholars say that isn't found anywhere else in the New Testament. Now, we in our English translations have the term secret in other portions of the Gospels and the New Testament. But what Paul says here, it gives an indication that um, that phrase is talking about being on the inside. You've got, you've got the inside scoop. You've learned the secret because you're on the inside. You've, you know something others don't because of where you are positionally. You're being on the, on the inside to gain this kind of knowledge. And then Paul says he has learned the secret of being content because he is in Christ. 
not because he is in wealth. Some of us think that all I need is that one more thing, that one extra thing, and I will be content. All I need is that new car. All I need is that new phone. All I need is that new relationship. And then I will be content. Then I will want no more. All I want is that next thing. Paul says that the only true contentment that you can find is to be found in Jesus Christ, is to be found in him and in him alone. It comes from being in Christ. Look at verse 13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. All this is talking about contentment in any and every situation. It's not talking about, as we sometimes twist this verse, verse 13, to mean I can do all things. I can do whatever I want. And we kind of turn it into a a power play card. I can do all things. And there is certainly a sense in which, by God's grace, we can do things that we could not do previously in our sinful state. I can say no to grace, or I can say no to sin because of grace. I can say no to temptation because of grace. I can do things now that I could not do in the past because of what God has done in me and because of the power of Jesus Christ and his resurrection power that resides in me. There are things I can do because of God's grace. Here in verse 13, I can do all this. I can do all these things. That is, I can be content regardless of my external situation. I can be content because of where I stand in Christ and because of the power that Christ has given me. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul's contentment, in some sense, we think is going to be just passive acceptance. Paul's in prison. Paul goes, well, can't do anything, can't change anything. I guess I'll just sit here and be content. And I think what Paul has communicated through his entire letter is that he has been actively pursuing a godly, Christ-like attitude and a godly, Christ-like action. He has actively pursued Christ his entire career. This has been his entire life from the moment Jesus knocked him off his horse on the road to Damascus. Paul has actively pursued a holy relationship, a whole relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is what has spouted this contentment, the pursuit of Christ, nothing else. It's not the pursuit of the next thing. It's only the pursuit of Christ that brings contentment. Paul is not telling them, he's not telling the the believers in Philippi that I have learned this secret and become self-sufficient. That is, I don't need your gifts, I don't need your things, I don't desire your things because I have everything that I need in and of myself, that I am self-sufficient. Some commentators talk about the the Stoic philosophy of the day and age that Paul may have been writing uh, in and around. And Stoic philosophy talked about contentment in self, not looking for things externally. And what Paul is writing to here, he's not talking about self-sufficiency, he's talking about Christ-sufficiency. Christ has given me everything that I need. Christ is all that I ever will need. Christ has and is in and of himself everything that I need. It's not self-sufficiency. It's Christ-sufficiency. That's the first section. Paul's contentment was not dependent on their gifts. Very grateful, yes, as we will see as we move into the next, next section. Very grateful, but not dependent. Why? Not because he was rich and didn't actually need anything. It's not like he's got $1,000 and they gave him $2 and he didn't really need that. He needed the, the, the support. He needed the help physically but because his attitude was rooted in contentment in Christ, not dependent on external situations. Is that true of you and me? 
Is that true right now in the midst of a pandemic where so much of what we used to have is now stripped away? It was your contentment based on your ability to do things, to go places, to visit people, to go to the mall or to go to the movies or to go play recreational sports, all of which or most of which has been stripped away. Was your contentment based on those external things or was it based on Christ? Are you self-sufficient or are you Christ-sufficient? Paul moves in through verses uh, 14 through 20 and he talks about the Philippians' display display of their concern for Paul, the way in which they actually gave and showed that they cared about Paul. And this is the second thing that Paul does. He says the Philippians' concern was a display of faith. We first had Paul and his contentment not being dependent on gifts and those gifts being a specific display of the Philippians' concern. He says primarily their concern, the Philippians' concern, was a display of faith. Verse 14, Paul talks about again uh, their gift and the fact that it actually did help. It was a part of his ministry and what he was doing. Paul's contentment did not diminish his commendation of their gift. Paul says in verse 14, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. He's still grateful, he's still thankful, content by himself because he is not truly alone. Even in prison, when everyone else has been pulled away from him, the Lord is still with him. His foundation is still sure. But he still says it was good for you to share in these things with me, to share in my troubles, to both share in the way that um, they are going through the same thing, but also because they shared in, they took out of themselves to share with Paul in the midst of his troubles. And Paul affirms that the Philippians have actually put into practice what he had just previously mentioned in verse 9. You'll remember in in verse 8, He talks about whatever is true, whatever whatever is noble, right, pure. Think about these things. Paul then moves into verse 9 and he says, and put those things into practice. When you think about these things, don't just let it sit and be a philosophical um, practice. Put it into action. Actually do it. And Paul says, it was good of you. It was beautiful. It was right for you to act in this way. They took to heart the very things that Paul was exhorting them to do in the previous verses. They were already doing it. They were putting into practice, putting into action their love and support. It was a lovely and beautiful and right and honorable thing for them to take of themselves and to give to Paul. Then Paul moves in verses 15 through 18. He he moves into talking about the, the financial transactions that took place, the things that they, the ways in which specifically that they helped him. And they no doubt know about these things. They understand exactly how their help was used and how maybe other churches and other places weren't able to help or didn't help or didn't want to help. We're not told why or how. They helped. And financial terminology is used. These transactions terminologies are used by Paul, which is a break from his normal, typical routine. We know he likes to use um, athletic analogies, athletic terminology, He's already used citizen terminology because uh, Philippi is a Roman uh, colony. We know that uh, the Philippian colony was uh, well populated by Roman guards, Roman citizens. Um, And so there's a little bit of warfare terminology used. Here Paul uses financial terminology. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, which is where Philippi is, 
Not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. Giving and receiving. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Need, aid, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Financial terminology, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Paul uses financial terminology to describe, to recount the history that Paul and the Philippians have, recounting their support of Paul. One commentator puts it this way. He says, Paul wants to stress, by using this financial terminology, Paul wants to stress that giving is not losing or giving away. It is not a writing off, but an investing in the bank of heaven. A return will be forthcoming, and it will be at compound rate. It will abound. Paul says in the last half of verse 17, what I desire, not the gifts, I desire that more be credited to your account. This transaction terminology of going from their credit to Paul's credit, their account to Paul's account, what used to be theirs is now Paul's. What Paul is really saying in verses 15 through 18, he's saying it may seem like from an external vantage point that you have lost something, that something is no longer yours, that because you have given to me and given up of yourself financially that you no longer have something. And Paul says that's not true. Paul says that just because it has been transferred from your account to my account, just because a transaction has taken place does not mean that you've lost anything. Does not mean that you are any more less because you have given up. You have exactly what you need. Paul has enough and you have enough. Because as we always like to say, and we need to be reminded of over and over again, What is ours is not truly ours, it's the Lord's. What is our money is not our money, it's the Lord's. Our house is not our house, our car is not our car, our families are not our families, they're the Lord's. Our building is not our building, it's the Lord's. What we have is meant to be used for the Lord in right, responsible, well-thought-out ways, but it's the Lord's. And Paul says, you've transferred things to my account. But what I hope for you, not to transfer back, not to repay, not to be owing to the Philippians, which is maybe why some commentators say, why Paul doesn't just come out right and say, thank you. Why doesn't he just say, thanks for the gift? He doesn't do that because he wants to err away from giving the Philippians any idea that they are owed something by Paul. He's trying to help them to stay away from any negative attitude towards the finances of giving and receiving. No other church gave in this way, Paul says. It was just the Philippians. And so he wants to help them that don't feel feel like you've been ripped off. Don't feel like you've given up something that you're never going to get back. Paul talks about his personal contentment. He says he has enough, full payment, more than enough, amply supplied, Apparently, and I've said this before and I'll reiterate again, I don't know the original languages all that well. So I trust those who do and what they say the original languages are actually communicating. And all of them say that this phraseology found in verse 18, what Paul is really saying is, is I have been filled to the full. It's not proper proper English or proper grammar. 
I have been filled to the full. I have the maximum amount. I have all of the everything I could ever need. Paul has it because of their gift. Because he was depending on God, not on them. And God used them to supply this gift exactly when Paul needed it. But more importantly, moving to the last sentence there in verse 18, he talks about what their gift actually was before God. Before Paul, it was an important help. Before Paul, socially, on a friendship level, it showed that they cared. But what did it mean before God? What did it represent to God? More importantly than a caring friendship, these gifts, these sacrifices that they gave, represented faith on their part. The faith that they had in God. The trust that they had in Him. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. It's all terminology of worship. Their gifts to Paul were first and foremost an expression of worship to God, an expression of the faith that they had in God, the trust that they had, and it was pleasing to him. Paul is saying that the evidence of their communing with God, having faith in God, the evidence that they actually had a relationship with God was the community with and the care for that they had for Paul. The greatest display that Paul is saying, the reason I know that you genuinely care for me is because it was your act of worship to God to give to me and to care for me. The relationship between each other, between the Philippians and between Paul, was horizontal, but it's because it started with the vertical. It started with the relationship they had with God. And the outpouring of their communion with God resulted in a caring for Paul. And God was pleased. A fragrant offering, acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And they would know God was pleased because he would take care of their needs. And my God will meet all your needs. This is verse 19 according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He will take care of your needs. How do I know that my act of worship, that my act of praise and trust and adoration to God in caring for my brother Paul, how do I know that of giving up of myself is going to be pleasing to God? Paul says, because God will care for you. Paul trusted in God, and he trusted that God would provide, and God did. He brought the Philippians alongside Paul to care for him. Now Paul says, what I've done, and he said this a few times in Philippians as well, take the example you see in me and put it into practice. Paul says, take the mindset and attitude that I have, trust in God that he will provide. You have that very same attitude. God used you to provide for me. And God will use someone or something else, somehow, some way, in his own time, to provide for you when you need. It's important to remember the difference between need and want and the difference between God's timing and my timing. Often I want God to provide my wants, not my needs. And when God strips away our wants, we find out that what we need is actually very less than what we thought. And we often want God to supply our wants right now, when I want them, not in his time. 
Paul says, trust God that he will provide for you exactly what you need and when you need it. Trust in him and all your needs will be met. This is how God operates. This is God's norm. He says, and God will meet all your, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. This is God's normal way of doing things according to his riches, according to the riches of his glory, according to, not out of, God certainly has an abundance of riches that he could just kind of plop out on people, his, his sons and daughters all across the world. He could just take out of his riches, but this is talking about according to his riches, according to the riches of his glory. That is, this is in accordance with what he always does. It makes sense that when God provides for his people, everybody should go, yeah, that makes sense. That's just like God. We do that on a personal level where you see somebody doing something or you hear somebody say something and you go, yeah, that makes sense. That lines up with their character. That lines up with who they are and how they normally act. Paul says this is exactly how God always acts. He always provides for his people. He always provides for their needs. Physically, yes, but primarily spiritually. According to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. This is how God operates. This is his norm. This is what he does for his people. He provides. He is the God of provision. And the only appropriate response to God's promised care for his children is praise. Not demanding. Not anxiety. Not frustration that it hasn't happened when we wanted it to happen. It's praise. Look at verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The only appropriate response to the promised care and provision of God is to trust Him and to praise Him. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul moves to his conclusion in verse 21. He says, Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Paul finishes his letter and he says, I love you all. He says, greet everyone. And what he's talking about in this phrasing, he's, he's not saying greet, greet the church as a whole. This is what we sometimes do. Uh, we see this displayed in missionary letters. It's not wrong, but the missionary letter will just say at the top, to Crestwick Baptist Church. And it's saying it to, to the group as a whole, the group as a church, not necessarily to individuals, not to the chair of the missions committee, not to those who sent specific gifts. Excuse me. It is written to those uh, as, as a larger group. Hear what Paul does in verse 21. When he says, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus, he's saying, greet each and every individual. Greet them as people, not as a group. Yes, the group has been greeted as a whole. But Paul says to whoever is reading this, you greet that person. You greet that individual from me personally. It's a personal letter. It's a personal greeting. It means so much more to hear, not listed, because he doesn't list all of the names, but he says, as you are talking to these people, Paul knows who's, who they are. 
Paul has in the back of his mind as he writes this greeting who the brothers and sisters are. And he wants them to be greeted individually by name. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. That is, there's, there's care back and forth. There's care on both sides. All God's people here send you greetings. We are all one in Christ. We are all standing on the same foundation. And the gospel has no boundaries. All who belong to Caesar's household. That is not necessarily Caesar's family, but those within Caesar's household, the servants, the slaves, those who care for. Yes, there might have been some family members related to Caesar, but in this case it's talking about the gospel has gone from a small region in Israel and has expanded across the globe and it has now gotten to the capital city of the empire. And there are people within the family of the man, of the individual, who proclaimed himself not only king, but God over the land. He proclaimed himself to be the savior of the people. And Paul says that even that family cannot resist and withstand. Even that family is not outside the boundaries of the proclamation of the gospel. That is, the grace of God can break down any heart. The grace of God can reach an impact into any heart, into any life, life, into any situation, no matter how seemingly far off or too difficult or too hard-hearted. Even the family of the man, the household of the individual who claimed himself to be God to the people. The gospel got in and they saw who Christ was and they saw who was truly God. Paul concludes his letter in verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Conflicts within, the struggle to have unity with each other, the call to have the same mindset that's been a, a good chunk of his letter, come back together and stand as one in Jesus Christ, the conflicts within the church, and the persecution experienced from without the church, that is from the outside coming towards the church, that can't destroy God's grace. That can't rip the grace of God out of the believer. It cannot diminish God's grace. It can't diminish our experience of God's grace in Christ Jesus in what he's done. Paul concludes his letter with grace because grace is everything. Grace is everything that we need. Grace is who you and I, is what you and I stand on. It's how you and I came to know Christ. Because the grace of God broke into our hard hearts and removed that heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. Grace is what brought Paul to Philippi. Grace is what brought the Philippians to salvation. Grace is what brought the Philippians to care for Paul. Grace is what sustains these people in the midst of their trials and their suffering, their discouragement, their despair, their anxiety, the God of all peace gives grace. I want to share with you something from a little booklet. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers and, and devotionals. And there's, there's one in here I'd like to share with you just as we conclude our message today and conclude our study in the book of Philippians. I don't know who wrote this, but I found it helpful. 
Lord Jesus, great high priest, thou hast opened a new and living way by which a fallen creature can approach thee with acceptance. Help me to contemplate the dignity of thy person, the perfectness of thy sacrifice, the effectiveness of thy intercession. Oh, what blessedness accompanies devotion when under all the trials that weary me, the cares that corrode me, the fears that disturb me, the infirmities that oppress me, I can come to thee in my need and feel peace beyond understanding. The grace that restores is necessary to preserve, lead, guard, supply, help me. And here thy saints encourage my hope. They were once poor and are now rich, bound and are now free, tried and now are victorious. Every new duty calls for more grace than I now possess, but not more than is found in thee, the divine treasury in whom all fullness dwells. To thee I repair for grace upon grace, until every void made by sin be replenished, and I am filled with all thy fullness. May my desires be enlarged and my hopes emboldened, that I may honor thee by my entire dependency and the greatness of my expectation. Do thou be with me and prepare me for all the smiles of prosperity, the frowns of adversity, the losses of substance, the death of friends, the days of darkness, the changes of life, and the last great change of all. May I find thy grace sufficient for all my needs. And so we conclude with Paul's conclusion to his letter, his prayer for the people of Philippi, and the prayer that we now pray to each other and to God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.